We're beginning a brand new series called I Do, We Did, Now What? And uh, this series is about marriage. It's about raising children. And I want you to get your Bibles, if you have them, and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, I want to tell you something. This is an incredibly important series uh, that we're going to be in over the next several weeks. And you may, you may ask, why, why is it so important? Well, uh, many of you know uh, the divorce rate in our country is currently at about 45%. And um, that has a huge impact, not only obviously on families, but on society. I was reading a, uh, a, a news article that came out a couple months ago. The Family Research Council recently did a report that said that only 46% of the children that are growing up in homes in the United States are growing up in homes that are actually intact, which means that there are two parents in, in, in the home. And according to this report, this is having a significant impact on our nation's graduation rate, the poverty rate, and the teenage pregnancy rate. Well, if we're going to talk about raising godly kids, then we first of all have got to start off talking about having a godly marriage. And if we're going to talk, uh, talk about having uh, a godly marriage, then we've got to talk about, first and foremost, the role of the man in the marriage. Now, I want to tell you how I prepared myself for this talk this morning. Last night, uh, my boys and I and a couple other Westergers and about half of Paulding County were down at the Georgia Dome for the monster truck thing, Monster Jam 2012. I know many of you were down there. I saw you. Um, so the testosterone's just flying this morning, okay? So we're, we're good to go. All right. Now, why start here? We're going to do a series on the family, on marriage, the whole deal. Why, why start here? Well, because when it comes to the family, God places a huge priority on the role of the man. If you look at statistics of graduation rates and poverty rate and, and, and high teenage pregnancy rates, you're always going to see a high absence of male influence in the family. And when the family falls apart, Society begins to fall apart. So again, this, this topic is huge. So let's just jump right into it. What is the role of the husband, of the man, in the marriage and in the home? Guys, I want you to write this down. I know this is a good, good morning to take notes, all right? He is commanded, he is commanded by God to be the leader. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, the body, and is himself its Savior. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 says it this way, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, there's a couple things that I want to point out about this verse. And first and foremost, God is a God of order. Not because of favoritism, but simply because God knows that without order, there's going to be chaos. And so he's created an order. The other thing I want you to notice is that both these passages use the word head. Now, what does a head do? First of all, it gives direction. As it moves, the body moves. A body that moves without the head giving direction is dysfunctional. So as husbands, we're given the responsibility to prayerfully provide spiritual direction to our wives and to our home. To be the head does not mean male dominance, where a man rules over his wife with an, with an iron fist or demands her total obedience to his every wish and command. God is clear that we are, we are equal in his sight and that we have equal value and worth. Galatians 3.28 lays it out. It says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. However, 
men, we are very clearly commanded to lead. Now, what does that mean? It means that we don't have a choice. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. If God has given you a wife, then you are to be the leader in your home. Genesis chapter 3, you know the story. God has made it very clear to, to Adam and Eve. This is, you, are in, you are over this garden, but there's this one tree with this bears this one fruit. Don't eat it. And Eve eats it. She sins against God. And in verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said, Where are you? Now, when God came into the garden, he did not look for Eve. He didn't call out to Eve. He came looking for Adam. He said, well, that doesn't seem right. I mean, Eve's the one who ate the fruit. Yep, but Adam was the leader. And God held Adam responsible for the fact that Eve had sinned because he had established him as the head of the relationship. Now, I want to just take a moment. I want to stop. And I want to just have a, just a heart-to-heart with you guys who are in the room this morning, and, and especially those of you who are in a marriage relationship, and, and you guys who are single, why don't you take notes, get yourself prepared. This is, a, this is a very difficult conversation. Anytime that I do a series on marriage and I talk to men, I can feel the tension in the room. I, I know why some of you got your elbows, you, you've been sharpening them up, you're ready to go. Guys, you're just sitting there going, oh, this is beat up Sunday. I didn't know this was going to be a beat, beat down the guy Sunday. This, that's not what this is all about. I hope, my hope when you leave this place is that you leave encouraged, that you leave empowered, you leave inspired. But here's what I want to say. Some of you, you don't feel like a leader. You, you, you're not, maybe you're not a natural born leader. So the thought of you leading anything is difficult for you to grab hold of. For some of you guys, you've never seen a healthy spiritual leadership modeled in a, in a home. So you, you either don't lead or you're leading from a flawed, dysfunctional pattern that was modeled for you when you were growing up. You're, you're the head of your home, but maybe you're operating as a bad head. Some of you are in a situation right now where, I mean, just let's be honest, your, your wife is the spiritual leader in your home right now. She, she's not just leading in decision-making. She is, she is the spiritual leader, but she's leading out of default because you won't lead. And so as I'm speaking right now, not only are maybe you feeling the tension, but she's probably feeling some of the tension as well. And then for, for, for many of you, this, this whole idea is brand new. Um, this whole Ephesians 5 thing is brand new to you, and maybe it's a little bit intimidating. So with all that said, where do you start with all of this? Where do you begin? Here's where you begin. Because there's lots of challenges when it comes to this conversation. There's lots of learning. Maybe you're, maybe you're going to have to fix some things. There may even need to be some repentance, which means, you, guys, you admit you were wrong. You change your mind to the point where it changes your behavior. So where, where do you start? Where do you begin? You start with Jesus. He is our role model, guys, for how we are to treat our wives. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait a minute. Jesus was never married before. I mean, he, he, he never had an earthly wife. How is he supposed to be my model for how I'm supposed to treat my wife? How I'm supposed to lead her? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, we are given a comparison. And it says, even as the husband is the head of the wife, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. In scripture, the church is called the bride of Christ. And Jesus is called the bridegroom. You, we together are his bride. This is a marriage relationship. Jesus um, is the bride. He's the bridegroom of the church. 
And this is just one of the, the, the many reasons I, I love the church. I have so much respect for the idea of the church because it is the bride of Jesus Christ. Men, we are called to be the head of our wives. Jesus is called to be the head of the church. So in order for us to know how we should lead our brides, we need to um, let the example of how Jesus treats his bride be our model. We need to put it up and go, that's what I'm going to do. That's how I'm going to follow. It's kind of how I'm going to act. Now, the wonderful news and the good thing about all of this is he's given us a path to follow. He has set the example. So it doesn't matter if you have never seen it modeled before or maybe what you saw was all messed up. Jesus says, do what I do and you won't go wrong. Study and follow, put into practice an example, the things that I've already set in place and and you'll be on the road to a solid marriage. Not a perfect marriage because you're not perfect and neither is your wife. Some of you go, how how do you know this is going to work? How do you know this is going to work? Well, first of all, this is the word, the very word of God. This is what he's told us. Second thing is that God has told us to follow the example of his son, Jesus. He's given us example and he's just laid it out. Follow Jesus, guys. This is how you're supposed to lead in love. And then, guys, this is very important. Number three, don't forget this. Women are responders. Women are responders. You send me, you may say, what if she doesn't respond? Keep doing it. She may not respond overnight. She may not respond in the next month. Just keep doing it. Keep, keep following the example of Jesus. Now, as a man, how are we commanded to lead our wives? First of all, we are commanded to love her unconditionally and sacrificially. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, guys, we are called to love our wives with an unconditional acceptance. That means that our acceptance is not based on performance. It's not based on her looks. It's not based on whatever her weight may be at that given moment or whatever mood you might be in at any given moment. But instead, it's based on her worth as God's gift to you. One of the best ways to love your wife unconditionally is to make sure that her emotional tank is full. It means that you need to be affirming to her. Let her her know verbally that you value her, that you respect her, and that you love her. Let me give you a little little secular wisdom. Learn her love language. There's a book out years ago by a guy named Gary Chapman. He talks about love languages. And he lists five of them. Words of affirmation, acts of service, physical touch, quality time, and gifts. Words of affirmation, acts of service, physical touch, quality time, and gifts. You can go online. You can take an assessment. Find out what yours is. Find out what your wife's is. One of those things is probably the way that your wife feels the most loved. Speak her language. Find out what it is and just speak her language. I'm telling you, you you, you will find out you can never do that enough. Look at this verse, 1 John 3, 18 on the screen. It says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. We all know. We all know words communicate. they, They communicate love, but so do actions. And so as husbands, as men, we have to do both of them. One of the missing ingredients in male leadership in the home is sacrificial action. That means that, guys, that there are times that we've got to sacrifice our own agendas or something that we value to sacrificially love our wives. Some of you go, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about, Brian? That means that there are going to be moments you're going to have to give up that golf game. There are going to be moments you're going to have to give up that football game, watching that football or that hunting trip or whatever that means. In order to meet our wives' needs, sometimes we have to sacrifice. Now, let me bring a little balance to this. Ladies, 
Guys have a need for recreation. Okay? We just do. However, guys, your wife has a need to connect with you as a husband, for you, for you to connect with what's going on in the house. They also have a need to, to rest and relax just like you do. So, guys, let me give you a couple suggestions. Have a date night. Whatever you did to get her in the first place before you put a ring on her finger, keep doing those things. Okay? Dress up nice. Clean your car out. Have a date night. Okay? No kids, no work, no stress. And then when you get to that date, let her communicate. Listen to her. Put your stinking phone down and listen to her. Look at her. Let her communicate what's on her heart and actually listen. We have a date night thing set up here in a few weeks on February 10th on a Friday night where you can drop your kids off for 15 bucks and go on a date with your wife. And we'll have some things you can talk about and things you can do. Another thing is give your wife some free time away from the kids and you. Wait a minute, my wife needs time away from me? Oh, yes, she does. Give her a Starbucks moment. Give her a movie moment with some of her friends. Just turn her loose, take the guilt off, set her free. Just go enjoy yourself. A lot of you guys, listen, you're in a season of life where you, you have small children in your house. And you may have to, right now, you may have to put down some things that you love to do for the sake of your wife until maybe your kids get older. That means, that, that means uh, to give yourself, that's what it means to give yourself up for your wife. Now let's look at Jesus for a moment here. What did he do? Paul says he loved his bride so much that he gave himself up for her. He sacrificed her. He took our sin and our punishment upon himself so that we could be loved and accepted by God. Why? That's how much God loves us. And that's the example of how we're to love our wives. Loved unconditionally sacrificially. Second thing, protect her. Ephesians 5:26 that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or or any such thing that may that, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now again, Paul is comparing Jesus's relationship with the church to the relationship that we're to have with our wives. When Christ looks at us, he looks at his bride He doesn't want to see sin. He doesn't want to see impurity. So, he died for us. He doesn't want others to to, to see us that way either. And so he died for his bride so that it could be seen as holy and pure. When a husband loves his wife with a protecting love, he loves her in a way that protects her from anything that would corrupt her, anything that might, might pollute her mind. It's a purifying love. You say, well, what does that look like? Well, let me give you a couple thoughts. We need to lovingly protect our marriages from sinful influences. And I've heard this a lot. Guys who want to bring porn into their marriage. Bad, 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 bad idea, guys. Sinful, bad. Don't do it. There's nothing good that's going to come out of that. Second thing is, and I know this may sound over the top, protect your wife from outside influence. Just what she sees or whatever. And I, I know this sounds over the top. And I know many of you do this with your kids. Um, when you go see a movie or something like that, you'll go to a, a website, focus on the family or whatever. You'll check out and look at the movie and sexual content and how many words are in it that, you know, you don't want your kids to hear. I, I do that when my wife and I go see movies. Because I don't, I mean, I don't want my wife to see a movie that's got 75 F words in it. I just don't. I feel a need to protect her from stuff like that, to, from those influences. I mean, she's a big girl. She could make that decision on her own, but that's what it means to protect your wife. 
Protect your wife from jealous feelings, from feelings of insecurity. Guys, some of you are your flirts. It's just you think it's funny. Everyone thinks it's funny. Your wife doesn't think it's funny. She may laugh and deep down inside, it's not funny. It's not funny. Protect your wife from conversations that may lead her to gospel, gossip or slander or may taint her opinion of someone else. Let me, let me, say, let me say this. Guys, ultimately, you're not responsible for your wife's sin, but you can lead her in a loving, protective way from things that may cause her to fall into sin. So protect her. Third thing is unselfishly care for her. Ephesians 5.28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. There's a couple words I want to focus in here on this little part in in, in Ephesians 5. The word nourish, the Greek word ektrepho, it means to bring up to maturity. When we nourish our wives, what we're doing is we're helping her to grow as a person. We're looking after her well-being. We want her to blossom as an individual. And I know that there are a lot of wives in here. You have have small children and and you feel that you have lost your identity. Kids came into the world. It was an amazing thing, but you've lost your identity. I remember when our boys were younger, my my, Taylor, our our oldest was just born. Amy was a school teacher and she stopped teaching and she was at home. And I remember her coming to me. She goes, I I feel like I've lost myself. I don't even sometimes know who who I am anymore. Some of you are in a stage of life where your children have all left the nest. My role is to encourage Amy to find her niche and then to give her the freedom to live it out, to help her to grow as an individual, to help her, to, to, to encourage her to expand her horizons. And she has played all kinds of different roles um, in, in the history of our marriage, but especially when we, when we started Westridge uh, 14 and a half years ago. When we first started, she and a couple other ladies, they ran the preschool for about a year and a half, two years. And uh, I remember many Sundays driving home, she didn't even get to come into the service and just tears running down her face. And she'd go, I can do it. I can do it. I can do it another Sunday. And it was like, just take it one Sunday at a time. And then we, had to, we hired someone to replace her and the other two women. And then she came along and helped um, get the women's ministry off the ground with another lady. And, and uh, she did that for a few years and got that going. And then we hired someone to replace her. And now she is, she is investing her life into church planners' wives. And she, with, uh, along with Cindy Lake, um, they are just pouring th- their life into, into church planners. And, and um, she has a passion for that, for church planners and their marriages and families. As a matter of fact, she and I just wrote a book together. I mean, and she really, to be honest with you, she drove that. Because she's passionate about health, church planners having healthy marriages and healthy families. She has a blog and, I, and she's a great writer, and I've encouraged her to, to just keep writing on that blog because women all over the world read this. It's called inbetweenballgames.com. And she just puts things that are on her heart, things that she's learned. Um, she has a burden to build kitchens in Africa at Compassion International sites. She's never even been to Burkina Faso. She's never been to Africa. But she, I brought pictures home of these women cooking meals for these kids at these compassion sites and she looked at the conditions and she looked at the pots and pans and I mean she was just broken over that and she started she started a project to get money raised to to build kitchens over there listen I want her to soar with all of that stuff and I've watched some of you guys who've done a great job I mean you you've sacrificed so your wife could pursue a degree or, or, to, or to, to attend a Bible study class or to go on a missions trip that's at trefo that's that's to bring up to maturity 
Watch, we got, a, we got an event coming up in a couple weeks, January 20th, uh, The Real You. Watching the kids on a Friday night so your wife can come to The Real You. That's a trefo. There's another word here. It's the word cherish, care. It's telfo. It means to warm or to pamper. I know some of you are going, warm and pamper. Brian, I need ideas quick. You, you, give me some ideas. I'm writing, bud. Just flowers are nice sometimes. You can get them anywhere. All right? Just pull it. Just get a card. Just write. You don't have to be a poet. Just, just write something in there like, I love you, and just put it somewhere. All right? Make her a bath. Draw her a bath and put candles around it. And then leave the bathroom, okay? Just let that be her moment, okay? Just keeping it real for you guys, all right? Paul says that the church is not just the bride of Christ, it's the body of Christ. There's no other entity that can call itself the body of Christ. That's one of the reasons I believe that the church is a hope of the world, because it's the body of Jesus Christ. And Jesus wants our wives to grow spiritually like he wants his church to grow spiritually. And men, he wants us to care. He wants to shepherd our wives as much as he wants to care and shepherd his body, the church. God wants that for our wives as much as he wants it for his church. Number four, serve her. Several years ago, I was at a conference and and, um, I was listening to Andy Stanley speak, pastor over in Alpharetta, and he was talking about... um, he asked this question. He said, what do you do when you realize that you're the most powerful person in the room? What do you do when you realize you're the most powerful person in the room? And Andy at the time was talking about leadership in the church, but he pointed us to Jesus. And he was talking about Jesus being in the upper room during the Last Supper. And he was with his disciples. It was the week before he was to go to the cross. And in John 13, 3, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So what did Jesus do when it dawned on him that he was the most powerful person in the room? Here's what he did. He washed his disciples' feet. He served them. It's described, the nature of Jesus is described in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 7, it says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So according to Philippians chapter 2, Jesus led as a servant. When Jesus realized he was the most powerful person in the room, that he was the head, the leader, he was, he showed us a servant leadership. He wasn't the boss. He wasn't a taskmaster. He wasn't a control freak. He was humble and he led by serving. So what's the challenge here this morning? The challenge is, guys, to be humble. And to serve our wives, to to be servant leaders to our wives. I remember years ago sitting in a conference, Amy and I were just newly married, and there was um, an older African-American pastor named Evie Hill who did a a sermon on marriage. I mean, we were just just writing. And I'll never forget this moment. He he talked about his wife, and he called her baby. And I'm not going to do this guy justice, but I'll just throw it out to you. He said, let me tell you how I treat baby. A server. And baby and I have something. She serves me, I serve her, but I will never let her outserve me. I will always outserve baby. I'm gonna keep I'm gonna when she serves me, I'm gonna outserve her. And I'm sitting here going, mm. Man, I, I was challenged. I've never forgotten that. And I said, that's going to be one of my goals. One of my goals is to outserve my wife. I don't call her baby, but I'm going to outserve her. 
Sometimes I call her baby. Listen, one of the best ways to serve your wife, guys, is understand her needs and serve her by tending to those needs. If I were to ask you the question, what, what are your wife's top three needs right now? Could you answer the question? I think, it's, I think it's important that you know that. You go, how do I find that information out? Ask her. It's just real simple. Get a pen and paper. Tell me your three greatest needs. Just write it down. If your wife is a young mother, she may have different needs than a woman whose kids are grown and out of the house. Now, guys, here's a disclaimer. Ultimately, you cannot be the bottom line person that meets your wife's needs. Only Christ can completely fulfill your wife's needs. And ladies, it is so important that you understand that. Because if you're looking at that guy next to you right now and going, he's going to be the one that meets all my needs, you're going to be desperately and severely disappointed. Very disappointed. Guys, listen, you cannot ultimately meet your wife's needs, but you can, you can help reduce her worries. You can take stress off of her. You can help reduce the troubles, the pressures. And I know some of you are thinking, what if she doesn't follow? What if I do all this and she doesn't follow? Just keep leading like Jesus. How long until you die? Until you die. Because this is not going to change. It's not going to change. Next week, Amy and I are going to be up here together, speaking together on the role of the woman. So men, it's your week. Next week, women, come on back. Number five, provide for her. Serve her, provide for her. Protect her, provide for her. First Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Boom. Now, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of guys, and I know this, you, you've lost your jobs over the last few years, and I know for a lot of guys, they are they're just so discouraged, they're paralyzed. Provide for your family. You don't have to be the number one breadwinner. You don't have to, you don't have, to have the greatest job in the world. Provide for your family. Provide for your, your wife. Now, why is it so important that, that, that a husband lead? First of all, because your wife's ability to successfully fulfill her role depends on your willingness to fulfill yours. And my wife has told me, again, over and over and over again, Brian, women are responders. We respond to what happens. We're, we, we're good or bad, we respond. And the whole picture that we see of Christ in the church is a response to what he has done first. The second reason this is so important is you're going to be held responsible for how you lead in your marriage and in your home. And as believers, we are, we are going to be held responsible for how we live out every scriptural command. So, so men, if God has called us to lead and to love our wives unconditionally and, and sacrificially, and we're commanded to care and protect and serve, then we're going to be held accountable for how we live up to those commands. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 23 talks about how we're going to be judged for our works and how, we're going to, you know, and, and how we build our lives. And so, guys, here's the deal. We're building homes. We're building marriages. The stuff that we build with, the stuff that we put into the marriage is going to determine the quality of your marriage. And we're going to be judged for this as believers. If we put in, into marriage servant leadership and unconditional love and unconditional acceptance and protection and unselfish care and provision, we're going to build strong, solid marriages that are going to stand up against whatever hits it. Now, what's at stake here? What's at stake here? Well, the strength and, 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 and healthiness of your marriage is at stake. 
but so are generations that follow you. If, you're, if you have children, guys, your sons are watching you and chances are they're going to emulate what you do. They're, they're watching how you lead. They're watching how you treat your wife. That could very, be, very well be the way they treat their wives. If you have a daughter, your daughters are, are either going to admire you and they're not going to settle until they find a man like you or they may settle for the first boy that shows them attention. Over the Christmas break, um, we watched Band, the series Band of Brothers. I, I'd never seen it before, HBO series, and I don't recommend it for kids, by the way. But um, it is, it's a pretty historical version of what happened during World War II with a particular unit called Easy Company, um, which was the um, 2nd Battalion, 101st Airborne Division, trained out of Toccoa, Georgia. They were paratroopers. And there's a scene... In this, um, in this movie, what if you want to call it that, where Easy Company is on the front lines in Belgium, and it's called the Battle of Bastogne. They're in Bastogne. And across this field in the city uh, of Foy are the Germans. And during this particular time um, in, in, the, in the life of this, this battalion, they're now being led by... Lieutenant, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Norman Dyke, who's a graduate of Brown. It's December 1944. I mean, Easy Company's lost a lot of people already. And I mean, they're dug in. It is freezing cold. They're having to dig foxholes in, in freezing you know, ground. I mean, there's snow all over the place. The conditions are crazy. They're under-resourced, and the Germans are hammering the woods where they're, where they're, they're stationed. I mean, just with heavy artillery, knocking trees down. I mean, people are dying left and right. And this lieutenant colonel, Norman Dyke, he refuses to lead. Refuses. Matter of fact, as you're watching him, mean, he continuously disappears into the woods. He comes out, hey, how's it going? And then he leaves. He refuses to, to give attention to his men in the midst of them getting hammered. He, 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 instead, he, he spends most of his time in a foxhole. He, he got the nickname from all of this, Foxhole Norman. And when the command finally comes down to attack the Germans and to, to go on the assault, Dyke refuses to make decisions. His men are begging him. They're in his face. Tell us what to do. Tell us what to do next. They're screaming at him. He's going, I don't know what to do. And he's just, he's paralyzed. And then finally, when he does make decisions, he makes bad ones. And as a result, several men from Easy Company lose their lives. Guys, listen to me. We're in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual battle. Marriage and family is God's designed institution. Satan and the world have declared war against the family. Our marriages are under attack. Our children are under attack. And I know many of you, you feel under attack. And when we either refuse to lead or we lead poorly, there are going to be casualties in the war. Now guys... One of my greatest concerns when I do messages like this is that so many of you, you walk out feeling overwhelmed, you walk out feeling beat up, you walk out because you, you look at this and you go, I, I don't know if I can do this. I'm supposed to feel like I can do it because I'm, you know, I'm a man. <gasps> but deep down in your heart, you go, I, just, I don't know if I can pull this off. My wife knows me way too well. She's seen me in action and... My children know me, they've seen me mess up time and time and time and time again. 
And so many of you, listen, you already feel like failures. Ladies and kids, look at me for a moment. I want to encourage you this morning to extend grace and encouragement. It's always easier to see your husband's need for grace than it is for you to admit and to embrace your own. But guys, listen, look at me. You're you're never going to be a perfect leader. From time to time, you're going to fail. But God is not going to command you to do something and then hang you out to jo- just to, to die trying. He loves you way too much to do that to you. So here's what he's done. He's laid out a plan. The command is to love and to lead your wife like Jesus. He's the model. We are to love and to lead our wives like Jesus loves and leads his bride, the church. Our strength and our power does not come from within ourselves. It comes, we, we draw it from the Holy Spirit in our lives. But when our enemy comes against us, and he will, and we feel weak, and we are going to feel weak, guys, look at me. And, and, we, and, when, and when we fall into sin, and we're going, to, we're going to do that, and we mess up, and we will mess up, and we feel like we want to just jump into our foxholes and hide. And we will feel like that. Or we feel like we want to throw in the towel. And we're going to feel those emotions. What do we do? We go back to the cross. The same place we found our salvation. And we repent. And we die to ourselves. And we walk up and we lead in victory. We lead in victory. Jesus died on a cross so that you could have victory over anything that comes against you. Even though you may have found salvation at the cross, you need to go back to the cross to find forgiveness, to find your security, to find your strength, to find your acceptance, to find your significance. Why? Because there's grace and there's mercy at the cross. And from that point, from there, that's how you lead, guys. That's how you lead. It's not in you. You're just not that good. I'm not that good to pull this off. That's why Jesus died for you. Because he is that good. I want you to watch this video that just hopefully drives home a little bit deeper what I just talked about. A couple pastors, Matt Chandler, John Piper, and a song that's familiar to, to many of you. And wives, I want you to just to pull for your husband, pray for him right now. Guys, Would you just watch this and let what I just spoke about, let it hopefully sink in a little deeper about who we are and what God's done for us to be able to live out his commands. Get saved because then you won't. And I got saved and kept on doing. So then where am I supposed to go? Because apparently Jesus doesn't work for me. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. We'll, We'll work through this. But I'm not letting you go in the meantime. Oh, we'll get there. I'll finish it. I started it. I'll be faithful to finish. Don't give up. Keep walking. Keep pressing in. Keep confessing. But don't give up. I'll heal you. I won't let you go. There is no one who can condemn you. I don't. And if I don't, no one can. Who will even bring a charge against you? Your mind. What court could they possibly charge you in? Everything's mine. He is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane. I am a tree. 
Eternity looked upon me, foreseeing my fallenness, my pride, my sin, and said, I want that man in my family. I would do anything to get him in my family. I will pay for him to be in my family with my son's life. That's love, folks. That is mega, off-the-charts love. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. That, that's why. You've got this weird compartmentalization thing that happens where you don't think that God sees all that you are or that if he could have somehow knew who you were going to be, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. Um, listen, God knew you were going to be messy. Uh, Christ knew that you were going to be messy. God, God knows that you're going to screw up often. He knows that you're going to be drawn to things that are wicked. He knows that's what the cross is all about. It's the whole point of the cross is that you're going to fail and you're going to stumble and you're going to feel dirty and you're going to feel awkward. And you're gonna, the whole point of the cross of Christ is there be this mighty picture of his love and pursuit of you despite you. So the cross is necessary because of you, but it's also the picture we have of just how far God is willing to go because he loves you.
Now, I'm not bitter against the church. I just think somehow we've got off and there's all this talk about morality and people are conforming themselves to these moral codes, but they don't know Jesus. Who cares? It's the resurrection of Christ that justifies. That's why it's so important. That's why it's so big. It proves that all the wrath of God was poured out. It's gone. For the elect, it's gone. There is no more wrath. There's, there's none. So Jesus sees you and he's like, my son, my daughter, perfect, spotless, blameless.